This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. If you live in Toronto, Mississauga or Brampton, you may have just had your first haircut in three and a half months. But it was likely a different experience than usual, since masks are required for both the stylist and the customer. Our Monday Zoomer squad was the first to react to news that the city of Toronto and the region of Peel would be entering stage two of the COVID-19 economic recovery plan this past Wednesday. This stage of reopening came six days after visits were first allowed in long-term care and retirement homes, which had been locked down since the beginning of March. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss, as they do every Monday, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. I think it's a good idea. I mean, um, we can't. We can't wait until the cases are zero. Like, it's just not going to happen, as we saw in New Zealand, where they were zero for a long time, and then two more sprang up. Um, I, I think we have to get this economy going. We have to get people working. We have to get... Uh, we just have to start getting uh, the whole thing going again. Marissa? I think we're seeing some positive numbers in terms of, uh, you know, the number of cases being reported positive. It seems to be going down. Um, and so that's a good thing. And I think people are eager to get back out there and, and are looking forward to phase two. Ontario has been very slow to reopen compared to a number of other provinces. And that's because, of course, Ontario and Quebec were some of the hardest hit provinces in the country. And so that makes sense. So it has been a slow process. And I think people are frustrated about that, but or were frustrated with that. But I think, you know, the, the government's doing everything it can to make sure that it opens while maintaining safety as people living in the province. Um, and so it feels like it's the right time. David? I agree uh, completely and side enthusiastically with Peter's take on it as well. I think that uh, it's high time. But I also, I also want to point out that this is a bit of a unique problem because there has been so much change in objectives and measurements and what are we trying to accomplish in the first place. And I can't keep track of what the strategy is anymore. At first it was to flatten the curve, let this occur as long as the hospitals don't get overwhelmed. Then it appeared the hospitals were not overwhelmed. And now it appears that, well, we're trying to get the infection rate down to some target that I'm not sure of, and I'm not sure what it even means when you consider how checkerboard the testing is and how flaky the denominator is in the whole calculation. So they're wandering all over the map here, and I think that it really is high time to get back to uh, uh, normal. We've been told to watch out for military vehicles. The military is leaving a number of homes that mm-hmm. that uh, they went in to, to try to stabilize the situation. We've seen the beginning of visits, which mm-hmm. uh, some advocates say are far too restrictive. And we're also seeing the government considering indemnifying nursing homes against claims related 
to COVID-19. So uh, are things better or worse for the residents of long-term care? I can honestly say we've, we've received a slew of emails and calls from members that are frustrated with these guidelines, feeling as though they're heavy-handed, they're not balanced, uh, uh, some suggesting they're not even evidence-based. So, you know, I appreciate the province, you know, exercising an abundance of caution here and lifting some of these restrictions. And no one wants to necessarily see these restrictions lifted entirely because we've seen such a devastating toll on our long-term care homes. Um, But we also need to remember, especially in light of the military report, that family caregivers are not just a nice-to-have they're a necessity, they're essential in the life of residents living in these homes. Um, and so, you know, when you consider some of the measures, that the, some of the things that the government has said is, so for example, you need to have received the, a COVID negative test, um, which will grant you uh, within the previous two weeks. So you'll basically be allowed to to have two 45-minute visits with this test and then what, you need to get tested again. The other challenge with, with negative tests and with testing in general is that it's difficult to obtain. People don't really know where to go to get tested. And you could test negative one day and, of course, come into contact with it the next day. So is that really the right measure? Um, and then also, you know, the restriction around, I, and I appreciate physical distancing, but now people are, are being asked to be double-gloved double to wear masks, okay, I can understand that. I appreciate even active screening. Um, but, you know, limiting uh, people to one guest. Well, let's say that guest has mobility challenges and can't get around on his or her own. Uh, now they need to bring someone with them in order to go visit their husband, sister, brother, whoever lives in the home. And and will that caregiver be able to support them? I mean, I, I think the, the restriction around one guest and, and certainly the the COVID test within a two-week span of each visit feels a little heavy-handed. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We started the week by learning that the World Health Organization was reporting the largest single-day increase in COVID-19 cases at more than 183,000 new cases globally. Globally. Brazil and the United States are currently the two hotspots, with India behind them. The dire news came as restrictions continued to be lifted around the world, with experts warning about a second wave, which could possibly be even more deadly. Overall in the pandemic, there have been 8.7 million cases, with nearly 462,000 related deaths worldwide. Dr. Samantha Hill is president of the Ontario Medical Association. Dr. Prabhat Jha is a Toronto epidemiologist. They spoke with Libby on Monday, soon after learning Toronto and Peel were about to enter stage two of economic reopening. I think we had no choice but to reopen, uh, given the extraordinary economic harm that it is causing. And I think the reopening in Ontario has been done on the whole uh, reasonably cautiously with identified benchmarks of a certain number of cases uh, per um, per day expected. So I think it's being done. 
What's interesting, um, Libby, is if you look at the global scenario, what we've got is the number of cases continues to expand, and in part that reflects uh, the expanded testing. So Ontario took a long time to get its testing story or testing strategies right, but now it's more than 20,000 uh, each day or more than 20,000 tested, which is exactly where we wanted to be. And yet the percentage of those testing positive, even as the numbers get tested, generally is continuing to decline. So that's all good news. Dr. Hill, um, I'm assuming doctors are looking forward to a reopening? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've been saying from the beginning that it's really important that we strike the proper balance as we move forward. Uh, that's been the OMA's stance since you know, we first started talking about reopening. Obviously, reopening the economy is important for people, for their finances, their social and psychological well-being, their developmental needs. But at the same time, we really aren't quite out of the woods yet. And as we reopen, we need to ensure that safety remains a top priority. It's um, it's easy to feel that we're past this. And while we are certainly in a much better place than we were worried we might be at this time a few months ago, and we really do need to work together with the government and obviously everyone in media. So I thank you for taking the time to to do this show because um, we need to make sure that there's clear and consistent information on all of these measures that's really easy to understand, really easily available and is regionally based. Dr. Hill, what can people think about seeing their doctors for? Is it is it still something that you would leave for an emergency or their regular screening and, and uh, regular, I mean, another thing that we've heard have gone by the wayside are regular vaccinations. So what should people think about seeing their doctors for? So first and foremost, Ontario's doctors are open for business. We're here to help. Um, I think that if someone has a concern, whether it's a routine visit or a new concern, that they should pick up their phone and call their doctor, leave a message, and trust that their doctor will respond to them with the best way to get that problem addressed. And sometimes that'll be a phone call. Sometimes it'll be one of those uh, facilitated visits. And sometimes it'll be an in-person visit. And if it is an in-person visit, you need to trust that your physician has done what is necessary to keep you as safe as possible and that the risks of not coming in um, outweigh the risks of coming in. But I'm not so certain we're not heading towards a bit of a health crisis. Um, as you know, I'm a cardiac surgeon, and we're already 700 cases behind where we were last year at this time. We can already account for, we believe, about 35 to 40 additional deaths compared to last year at this time, frankly, because of the backlog of healthcare. And we aren't ramping up, and we don't have the capacity to ramp up to recoup those losses um, as we move forward. The hospital system just doesn't have that kind of reserve. We usually work at 100, 110% capacity. So, um, it's going to take some very careful planning between the physicians and the government to make sure that we address the most urgent, most necessary care first. We are all well aware that preventative care is much better than delayed care. Dr. Ja, uh, are you getting a haircut? Uh, my daughter cut my hair at, uh, in the backyard, but <laughs> I will get a haircut. I mean, she did a good job, but I could uh, get one, but I will get a haircut. Again, I, I you think, what? how does an epidemiologist look about this? I think we, what we try to do is to say, who's at low risk? So I think everyone who's been at home for two weeks, if you can build a circle of friends by asking that, are you safe? Are you not traveling? You know, the usual questions, not traveled anywhere, had any symptoms? And are you likely not to go in to work to a nursing home or a hospital or you're looking after seniors? So if I ask my barber, 
you've been at home for two weeks, yes, and um, you're going to wear a mask. Absolutely no concerns about getting a haircut. Toronto epidemiologist Dr. Prabhat Jha and Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The federal conservative leadership campaign is being overshadowed by a spat between the camps of the two frontrunners, with Aaron O'Toole's people accusing a Peter McKay staffer of stealing confidential campaign information and filing formal complaints with the RCMP, OPP, and Toronto Police Service. The McKay campaign is totally dismissing the claim, calling it a desperate last-ditch strategy. Our strategy panel of Karen Stintz, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco joined Libby Snymer to discuss. I think it's just troubling all in all. You know, the fact that, that the leadership campaign has, has been... Has a- it's had it's had sort of a low uh, public um, profile over the last little while, you know. And then we had some we had two debates back to back, the French and the English, and it was getting some attention. And then to come into this, I think it's qu- quite unfortunate, given the fact that we're now getting the summer months because obviously the leadership is not until August. But so it is troubling, um, and I think that you know I think campaigns in general, uh, when when they hear allegations against them, uh, you know, their first reaction is to sort of pivot and to say no, it's not true or. Or, you know, we don't know anything about it and, and that kind of stuff and hoping that it becomes a day story or, in fact, that the allegations against them were in some cases false. I think that the challenge was for, for Aaron O'Toole's campaign was that he, he laid the charges uh, on the Friday, uh, which was exactly the day after the two debates and, and exactly after the, the debates in which he didn't do particularly well. So it was easy to be able to say, oh, you know, it's a sign of desperation. The campaign's been do well, and, and, and this is the situation that, that we're facing. Uh, and if it's proven that, that, in fact, it was the case that Peter McKay did steal it, or his campaign did steal it, then, you know, there's some heads will have to roll in order for this to, uh, to smooth over. Charles, is it, is it just good news because it makes your guys look better? Bringing criminal charges in a party leadership race against one of your rivals is akin to a declaration of war. It says so many negative things on so many levels. And I have to think the O'Toole campaign did it because O'Toole was an unmitigated disaster on the Wednesday night in French where he just was over the top, angry. And then Thursday, he was he was a damn squib. And, you know, I don't particularly like any of the conservative leadership candidates from a partisan perspective, but I have to say McCain, uh, rather, McKay wiped the floor with him. And so coming out of that, it feels like uh, it was desperation time on the part of the O'Toole campaign, and they overreached. And the irony of the situation is, you know, Peter McKay has run really a lousy campaign, but he's not a bad candidate. Whereas um, Aaron O'Toole's campaign has been particularly effective, and he's not a great candidate. And um, that's really starting to show now. And I think, you know, the whole process has entered a whole different level. And it may be incumbent upon McKay and O'Toole to get together and say, we've got to put this behind us for the sake of party unity. Karen? You don't take these fights public. And no one comes out looking good when these fights become public. So uh, there's not, nothing looks good on the Conservative Party right now. You know, as someone who's, who's interested in politics and interested in the outcome, you know, again, I wasn't particularly moved one way or the other by the debates, but now everyone's talking about this nonsense. And it, quite frankly, is nonsense because, so, okay, I mean, at the extreme, if it's true, he took a recording from a Zoom call that we know is not private. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no security on a Zoom call anyway. 
<laughs> and what did he confess to? That he wants the, the votes from the SOCONs, social conservatives. Well, so if you want them, why are you, why is that an issue? And so none of it, quite frankly, makes sense to me. The old days, you'd send a, you'd send somebody over to somebody, a rival's campaign as a spy and, and hope that they would somehow, you know, infiltrate the campaign and then come back with, uh, with uh, campaign secrets. But now, of course, in the day of, of uh, COVID and, and everything has to be done virtually, um, you know, it, it's just shocking that, that, you know, they would do certain things on Zoom and not over conference calls and, and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I just hope and I just hope that they, the two campaigns do come up to a resolution on this and that they find out what's happening and, and they move on and that they dispense of any potential charges being laid. Uh, and the last thing you want is a new leader to come in uh, with this hanging over them, uh, especially because, as we saw in the polls, the, the PCs have now dipped a bit uh, below the Liberals. Um, and, you know, so you want to be able to have the leader come in and actually command uh, some some loyalty in the party and move forward and try to reverse those numbers. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Have you received a rebate from your auto insurance company during the COVID-19 crisis? It seems most Ontario drivers have not gotten any cash back during a time when there are fewer vehicles on the roads and more people are driving less while staying home. Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips says he will name and shame car insurance companies, which are not offering discounts for drivers during the pandemic. He's already mentioned Desjardins Insurance as the company he's heard over and over not providing any kind of support for drivers. On Tuesday, Libby was joined by Anne-Marie Thomas, insurance expert at insurancehotline.com, and Tom Rakasevic, Ontario NDP auto insurance critic. The government has the mandate to be able to require a rebates of a set amount. At the beginning of this pandemic, um, I called for and I joined my NDP MPP colleagues in calling for a 50% reduction over three months during the social distancing time um, on our auto insurance premiums. I've done the research within Toronto alone. There has been a 74% reduction in, in accidents during the time of social distancing. These insurers are making lots of money as a result of these savings and they're not passing it on to, to Ontario drivers who deserve respect and are already overpaying before this pandemic ever started. We've seen a recent survey come out that talks about 30% of Ontarians uh, saying that they think they're getting some form of relief. And then when you further go on and ask them what that means, the vast majority say it's, it's barely anything. And we're saying this is something that you shouldn't be leaving people to haggle with. And I don't agree with the numbers. Okay. FISRA is not reporting everything on what's going on. They haven't even released their quarterly yet. Auto, uh, Toronto, Ontario drivers have seen nine straight increases in insurance. And what's happening is we're waiting to see if it's going to be a 10th straight. And FISRA is not even coming out with the numbers, yet they've allowed insurers to do what they want. Okay. Anne-Marie, what's your perspective? You deal with and track a lot of different companies. What are you finding? Right. So insurancehotline.com, we, we're a, um, a rate comparison website and we commissioned a survey uh, about, you know, a consumer, like what, ha- what did, what did 
as a consumer did you get in terms of relief from your insurance company? And the interesting part to me was that many of the respondents weren't even aware that they were either eligible or would be getting uh, like a, a rebate. Only 25% said they were offered some sort of relief from their auto insurer, where 64% said they weren't. And I, I, I don't know exactly what that means. It could be that uh, consumers are unaware or... Uh, the insurance companies are taking a more, some insurance companies are taking a more laid back approach and waiting for the consumer to approach them for, you know, some sort of relief versus, you know, what some ins- other insurance companies are doing, which is just offering, you know, we'll take X off your premium for the next three months. So it, it was, it's interesting. Um, because the number I think that the fine, that FISRA came out with was, um, 600 and odd, uh, 685 million dollars in, uh, COVID-19 relief. But that's not what our survey said. Tom, do we need more specific regulation on this? Absolutely. Part of the problem is there's no clarity here. Um, my plan, the NDP plan, was very simple at the very beginning of all of this. Mandate a 50% reduction for three months for all premium holders. And that would be something where people aren't left to haggle, where some people may have good experiences, where the vast majority are absolutely not, if they're getting anything at all. Um, and this is what we're seeing. And at the end of the day, the government is hiding the, the increase to insurance. So people, as you can see, my neighbor just walked onto my property the other day, Amazing guy, senior, salt-of-the-earth person, an impeccable driving record, $600 increase in the midst of COVID. And, That's what and he's looking at. Was there an explanation for it? No. Is there anything we, you want to leave us with? Um, I just appreciate the opportunity. I, you, you know, your show has really given a, a, a voice to drivers, and it's so important that all the drivers out there reach out to this government and tell them that the pittance they're receiving, if they're receiving, is not enough. There's so many issues in auto insurance from postal code discrimination to a lack of transparency. And certainly the fact that we pay the highest rates in the country with some of the safest roads, the proof is in the premium. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Drivers deserve respect and they deserve a reduction in all rates for all drivers in Ontario. Tom Rakasevic, Ontario's NDP auto insurance critic, and Anne-Marie Thomas, insurance expert at insurancehotline.com. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Ron in Toronto called to tell us about his experience in getting a COVID-19 test. I don't know what the difference is around the province. Um, I had a precautionary test uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, this was over a week ago, I was told by the officials there that, uh, I guess, I don't know how it works again in Toronto, that no news is good news, that if they didn't, um, if I didn't hear from them by Friday afternoon at the latest, that uh, I was negative. So I don't know why it's taking seven days in Toronto. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Verna in Oakville, who called us back after her first two visits to see her husband, Bruce, who's been in a nursing home lockdown due to COVID-19. Yesterday, I went to deliver a Father's Day card to the reception to be given to Bruce. And I didn't actually do a window visit, but I looked, because it was lunchtime, I looked through the window and I saw all the residents in the unit. And I have to say, I was so shocked at the deterioration of all of them. And Bruce was being, two caregivers walked him in and tried to get him to sit down, but he's seems to have lost the ability to know how to sit down. So I was really shocked with that. But I noticed such a dramatic deterioration yesterday especially. But when I saw him as well at the visit outside, I noticed he was very frail and he had a blank, you know, when he wasn't actually interacting with me, um, he had a blank affect, you know, his face was blank. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.